and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Annie Murphy-Paul is an acclaimed science writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the Boston Globe, Scientific American, Slate, Time Magazine, and the Best American Science Writing, among many other publications. She's the author of three books, including Origins, which was reviewed on the cover of the New York Times book review and selected by the New York Times as a notable book. She's also the author of The Cult of Personality, which was hailed by Malcolm Gladwell in The New Yorker as a fascinating new book. Her latest book is The Extended Mind, which we get into quite a bit in today's conversation. 
and he has spoken to audiences all over the world about learning and cognition. I watched a video of her speaking at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Her TED Talk has been viewed by about 3 million people. And today we actually do a deep dive, certainly into all of Annie's work up until now, but we really do a deep dive into the science of creativity, which is what Annie is most curious about at the time of this recording. And perhaps down the road, there will be a book that Annie will share about creativity. So we get into a variety of topics in today's conversation, and Annie is someone who deeply, deeply cares about research and science, and she's a heck of a writer. So here is Annie Murphy-Paul. Annie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. A big fan of your work. And when I asked you, hey, what, what are you excited to talk about? And and I know when a book is written, it's sort of about the past interest and and we do a lot of research on information, but there's always a future interest that I think it's most people excited. I often say when I wrote a book, I finally understood what it was like for Bruce Springsteen or some rock star to not want to play the classics and want to play their new music. So let's play your new music. Uh, You said to me, what you are most interested in right now is creativity. And I have two kids that are very, very different uh, personality wise. And we could talk about personality today as well, but um, creativity is something that I see in them from a young age and it inspires me. So can you talk a little bit about what you're finding as you dive into creativity and, and what's underneath the surface and what sparks creativity for people? Yeah, thanks. Thank you, Brian, for having me on and also for asking me about what I'm interested in right now, because you're so right. You spend years, in my case, writing a book and then years more talking about it and you get you can get a little tired of it and if you always want to move on to the exciting next thing. And for me, that's been creativity Um, The extended mind actually emerged out of my research and reporting on the science of learning. And I think learning and creativity are are related. And we see that in kids. I'm glad you mentioned your kids because, um, you know, one of the themes I've been exploring in my, I have a Substack newsletter called the science of creativity, where I'm kind of playing with these ideas. And um, one of the themes of that newsletter is that we're all creators. We're all um, everyday creators just by virtue of being humans. And we see that in kids, right? I mean, kids just sort of naturally uh, come up with new ideas, new ways of doing things. And then we tend to lose that as we get older. And so um, I think it is related to, to learning in the sense that creativity for kids and for adults is kind of how we learn. We're experimenting, we're trying out new things and seeing what happens. And to me, creativity, the reason that I'm so drawn to it is that it's really like an expression of aliveness. You know, I mean, it's the opposite of being numb and and uh, sort of deadened by routine, you know, because it's it's seeking novelty. It's seeking something that we haven't seen before, creating something, bringing something into existence that hasn't existed before. And to me, that is um, that's kind of the best of what human beings can do. You know, when I'm enjoying like an amazing song or looking at a beautiful painting, I I feel so elevated by this human enterprise, you know? And so to me, creativity is just the purest expression of that. It's so interesting because when I think about my childhood, I was not labeled as creative. Uh, I was probably mislabeled as athletic and that turned out not to be the case as I got into high school. Um, But as an adult, people would describe me as a creator and someone who loves novelty and loves 
new things. And I think that's true. I love creating stuff, building stuff, um, the, the start of it, the journey of it, more mm -hmm. so than the end of it. But I love like the spark. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering about our education system. And I know you think a lot about our education system because you mentioned art and music. Those were not things that I was particularly good at from a young age. And so as a result, I didn't think of myself as a creative. And I'm wondering if we go too narrow in sort of thinking about creativity for our children, especially in a world where, you know, a teenager can have a podcast or uh, have a TikTok following or, or whatever it might be. Can you talk a little bit about how you think about creativity, especially for our children, and maybe how we can broaden it or widen that spectrum so that people can lean into whatever the creative version of themselves looks like? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you mentioned music and art classes, um, and those are some of the casualties, unfortunately, of what was a very extended period of of kind of focusing on testing and accountability and there was a lot of emphasis on seat time meaning less recess less um free time free free play and fewer of those um those art oriented and music oriented and drama oriented classes and i think that that's a shame i feel like we're we may be um swinging in the other direction now i, I hope that's the case but um one of the other uh, themes I'm exploring in this work I'm doing on creativity is that researchers are increasingly um, demonstrating that creativity is a skill that can be taught. And it's kind of, you know, it's, I don't think that um, nullifies what I was saying before about how we're all sort of naturally creators by virtue of being humans. I think that's also true, but um, with this sort of raw kind of capacity for seeking new things, creating new things. That is a, that's a, a capacity that can be taught and cultivated and developed. And that can be something we're, that we're doing in our schools. And unfortunately, again, with this emphasis on um, purely sort of academic or um, intellectual content, you know, and, and measuring that and, um, and competing in terms of that, um, some of that other, those other ways of developing our humanity are get lost, but I think they're just as important, um, just as important in terms of preparing our children for their adult lives, which is, is part of what school is about, um, as those more traditional academic, um, skills are. And when I hear you talk about creativity and it's something that we all have inside of us and it can be learned, I think about my kids and the number one thing I think of when I think of them is curiosity and they have this just abundance of curiosity annoyingly curious right and and my my son is he's got like radar on and he'll interrupt me and my wife having a conversation to learn more about it when we're just trying to figure out how we're going to get home from florida like we did last night um curiosity is something that i'm also I, i'm probably most curious about curiosity if i were to write another book it'd probably be all about curiosity uh just because i think once again it's inside all of us and it can be developed and i think for me in my perspective and i haven't done a deep dive into creativity but to me it would seem as though underneath creativity would have to be curiosity and i don't know which one maybe comes first maybe it's we create and then that create creativity breeds curiosity and i know we're riffing here and this doesn't have to be like a well-formulated answer annie's work is very well formulated i mean if you go into her work she 
Uh, it is very detail oriented, researched. Uh, she brings in all these different elements to her work, but I like this. <laughs> this is creativity. This is novelty. This is what I love. Can you talk about what you're finding with curiosity and perhaps the link to creativity? Which one might come first? How how we should be thinking about curiosity and creativity as as it um, as it relates to each other and and relates to actually building stuff. Yeah. Well, I think this is a good demonstration, actually, Brian, of, of creativity, because creativity and curiosity are messy. You know, I mean, you you do ultimately aim for, if you're a writer like I am, a book that, as you say, is coherent and well-organized and all of those things. But the process of getting there is quite messy and you don't always know what you're looking for or what you're going to find. So there's a certain tolerance of that kind of uncertainty that I think you need to cultivate if you're going to be um, allow yourself to be guided by curiosity. And similarly, you know, um, there's such an emphasis in adult life on being productive. I mean, we all have a lot of stuff to get done, right? And there's a lot of emphasis on, um, well, you and I were talking briefly before the, the show about Charles Duhigg, like his fantastic book about habits. And so we we get this idea that like, if we can just sort of routinize everything and, and create the right habits, we can... Um, we can get everything done in this very efficient way. And then we start to feel a little deadened and a little bit like, oh, there's no spark to my life because I'm I'm just a machine, you know? And that's when we kind of have to, it, it's an, I find that it's a sort of oscillation between these two modes. And um, the psychologist, Alison Gopnik has a really useful way of talking about it. She talks about how there's, um, exploit mode and there's exploration mode and exploit is what we do as adults when we take all the knowledge and all the skills that we build up so carefully and we go right to the heart of what we need to do get it done you know it's like um, we're very efficient and very effective in that way but if that's all we do then we're not bringing in all the potentially kind of game-changing um you know options and alternatives that we can only find by this messy kind of you know, open-ended, um, curiosity-driven exploration. And and kids are really good at that. That's why it's so hard to get them like out the door in the morning to school, <laughs> you know, because they're not hyper-focused like we are as adults, but we can kind of take a page from them because they at the same time are coming up with all kinds of crazy dreams and ideas and imagination-driven uh, productions that adults have a risk of leaving behind in our focus on, on productivity. It's so interesting. You mentioned Charles and then you mentioned exploit and exploration because we just had him on the podcast. Oh, and, one, uh -huh. and one of the things he said was, you know, during the pandemic, he did all this research for his book and he's continuing to do a lot of research. He has a new book that's coming out. And he said they were all Zoom calls and mm -hmm. interviews with people. And you would think the guy who's all about productivity and habit would find that to be really an efficient way of doing things. And yet he said he missed actually going on the road and mm -hmm. going to people. Mm -hmm. And what he said was he missed the exploration. And oh, so he was able to ex exploit the information, but he right. said a lot of his best sparks and best ideas come from unplanned organic exploration. Uh -huh, uh -huh. It's fascinating because I'm thinking about most things I believe this is probably something I'm pretty convicted about are about polarity and are about, you know, exploiting and exploring, right. Having habits and having autonomy and perhaps 
creating structure and scaffolding to explore. And you talk about scaffolding in your book, and I think it's a beautiful word. And so for you, how do you blend those? How do you make sure that you are exploiting and being hyper-focused when you write three books? You have to have that in you, but also giving yourself space to go explore or create or give yourself space to be a beginner and be curious. How do you blend the two of those for yourself? Yeah. Well, in my own work, I I think of it in terms of stages. You know, it's it's sort of a path that you're on and, and each stage of the path requires a different kind of work, a different kind of thinking. And at the beginning, my goal is to keep that funnel open as wide as possible in terms of um, looking as, as widely as possible across different disciplines. I, I like to work in a really interdisciplinary way, um, talking to as many people as possible and kind of allowing as much in as possible without a whole lot of filters, without a whole lot of judgment or evaluation, you know? Um, and then, um, you begin the next stage of the process would be looking for patterns, looking for a kind of order. Um, and it's, I, I often have the experience of, 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 uh, finding that there's almost an, a kind of organic order in the material that I've collected. I just need to kind of find it and that can take a while. Um, and of course I'm imposing my own order from a top-down level as well. And then by the end, it's a very fine process of, fine tuning the wording and, um, you know, making sure that everything, everything is explained, everything makes sense. And I actually enjoy each phase of the process, but each one is, um, each one is quite different. I'm thinking in my head or maybe my body, uh, if I'm more of an explorer or exploiter, and I don't know if that's sort of the idea behind it, but I think I'm way more of an explorer than an exploiter. And Perhaps that's why I wasn't always great in school. I I didn't I didn't care if the teacher wanted me to exploit and learn about the history, you know, of our country or in algebra and exploit that information. I was like, if, if I don't find this interesting or useful, I'm just not that I'm not gonna study that much on it. It didn't it didn't end up well. Um but exploring, like I I love that. And I, I find that I'm more drawn to that. And you said something earlier, you said something about feeling alive. And I have come to understand that happiness will will come and go. And there's certainly things that I can do to, to have a happier life. And I like studying the science of happiness as much as anybody, but I've, I'm more drawn to feeling alive. And I feel alive when I'm exploring more than I'm exploiting. Mm-hmm. You're nodding your head. I'm wondering if yeah, I'm wondering if we're wired though. I'm wondering if there's like some wiring that's involved there that maybe some people are more drawn to exploiting and some are more drawn to exploring. Because yeah. I was just with my older brother who was always so good academically, and he's so amazing at exploiting information. Amazing. Like I'm mind blown. We just talked about artificial artificial intelligence. We were on an hour drive and he just rift on artificial intelligence for an hour. And I was like, holy crap, man, I, I'm interested in the first, you know, 10 minutes of this, but then like his ability to go really hyper-focus and go deep into it. And it helps, it helps in a lot of ways. And artificial intelligence is something I was thinking about as I was reading your book, but 
back to that exploiting and exploring thing, I'm wondering if there's a nature nurture component there where maybe there are some of us that are really drawn to feeling alive when they're exploring. And maybe some people are really, they feel really alive when they're exploiting information and they're connecting synapses and, and all kinds of stuff. Any thoughts on that just based on, on what you're, you're looking at? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I imagine there are individual differences in terms of um, what people find gratifying the exploration stage or the ex exploitation phase. What worries me a little bit is that the rewards are so tilted towards ex exploitation in terms of what our institutions reward, you know, what is getting uh, an A in a class or a, a high score on a test about, but exploiting, you know, rather than, and I think with our world and the state that it's in, we actually need more, we've exploited, we're exploiting ourselves to death. You know what I mean? We're exploiting the, the environment, we're exploiting um, our attention. There's, there's, we've actually in some ways maybe gotten too good at it. You know, we need, <laughs> we need, I think it, it would be fit, it would um, behoove the world and us as individuals to shift back into that exploration mode rather than so ruthlessly and relentlessly exploiting all the time. I'm wondering how we can reward, like what, what some of the rewards would look like for the exploration. I don't, I don't know. I yeah. gotta wonder what it would look like. Well, I, I, I wish that the idea that you were mentioning earlier, Brian, um, were better known that, um, happiness comes and goes, but, but aliveness is something that we can, um, that is going to bring us kind of the most meaning in life, the most, I think, ultimate, um, peace of mind, contentment. I don't know. I'm trying, I'm trying not to, um, trying to draw a contrast with the idea that you should feel good all the time. I mean, to me, this was really brought out in the pandemic when so many of our usual pleasures were eliminated, you know, and a lot of us felt a kind of deadness and, 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 um, uh, lack of spontaneity or a lack of, um, newness and freshness, you know, and as the pandemic has receded, what I have found is that I just want to feel more and more. I want to have new experiences. I want to put myself in new situations where I see myself in a new light, you know, all these things that we couldn't do during the pandemic and like happiness, whatever, like, as you say, it comes and goes and it's not really under our control, but seeking out the experiences that make us feel alive. Like that feels so important to me following this kind of enforced uh, confinement of the uh, of put upon us by the, by the pandemic. I mentioned this on a previous podcast. What I missed most was like seeing a new restaurant open up or being in my car and missing a turn or uh, you know, going over to a friend's house and not sitting outside or whatever it might've been. The novelty I thought, was not there during the pandemic. It was almost like it was frozen. And while being home with my kids and there were some beautiful memories that we've made and, you know, we started videoing them, you know, pretty early on to try to capture what the experience was like and interviewing them. I miss novelty. And I, I find I'm very drawn to novelty and new experiences. Um, it's interesting because people ask me all the time, they're like, Brian, why are you doing this podcast? And uh, why did you write your book? And is it, you know, the people say, write a book and then that's your business card or, uh, you know, start a podcast and then you'll get X, Y, and Z. And certainly I've gotten things from, from doing both of those, but I did them because I felt alive. And to your point about writing a book, it was painful. It was not always happy. And by the way, this podcast is not always 
uh, a happy experience. Booking people sucks. And, and by the way, a podcast is not a binding agreement in case anyone's wondering, I'm not paying Annie to be here and she gets paid for her time a lot. And so, uh, there are pain points that go on with the podcast technology. There's all this negative stuff. And oftentimes with both the book and the podcast, people will say, well, who's the audience? Who's this for? And I'm so bad at answering that because I'm doing it because it's a fun exploration to learn. And to me, I like to make an impact. So why not then share what I'm learning with others and hopefully it will positively influence them. And that's really it. Like if there are clients that come to me as a result, that is the cherry on top. But uh, there were many, many years where I was not getting anything from any of this stuff. And so I think about exploration and I'm so glad you brought this brought that to me because that is why I'm doing this. Literally in real time, it is uh, that piece of exploration. I think it's a, it's a nice place to sort of bring in the extended mind because when I think about my education, I, I went to grad school for sports psychology and, and that was all about the mind. It was, it was focused on the mind and I worked with athletes and for athletes, basically they think emotions are bad, negative, like, Play neutral is the whole idea of uh, being a good athlete or keep your body out of it. Um, in some ways, keep your mind out of it, right? And and just let yourself be a robot. And even coaches, you'll hear them say, oh, I like guys who are even keeled. Like that's something that's a positive in sports. Your book uh, speaks to something as I, I have done more and more work with human beings that the body is just ignored. And then there's these other spaces, environment that also often are ignored and certainly were ignored when I was in grad school. Um, I, it wasn't until I went back to school again to this program at Georgetown where they really started to get into somatics and all these other factors that impacted how we see the world and how we're influenced. Um, for you, let's try to uh, merge creativity with the extended mind. Uh, I'm curious, like, how did the extended mind spark uh, a, a desire to lean into creativity and, and how might those two be linked? Yeah, well, the development of the, of the extended mind, my, of, of how that book came to be, um, is an example of, of exploration actually to carry on that theme, because, um, I had been studying the, the science of learning for a while, and I was looking for, a big idea that would kind of, this is what I look for as a reader and as a writer also is, is like a big idea that would kind of transform the, hopefully the way I think the way readers think, and I wasn't finding it in the science of learning. And so I, I expanded the sort of ambit that I was traveling in as a, as a reader and a researcher. And, and I came across this idea of the extended mind in a philosophy journal. Um, and so I ended up borrowing this idea, the idea of the extended mind, which maybe I'll just briefly explain for your listeners, um, is um not was not mine originally. It was I'm I'm borrowing it from two two philosophers, uh Andy Clark and David Chalmers. And when I first read their um their article, I really was grabbed by their the first sentence of of um of the extended mind this article that they wrote in 1998 that introduced the concept um and the first line went um where does the mind end and the rest of the world begin um and that to me was just such a provocative idea because um the and the conventional answer to that question is you know the mind ends at the skull you know it's the mind and the brain they're kind of the same thing and right <laughs> and Clark and Chalmers are saying no actually the mind extends 
outside the skull, through the body, uh, into our surroundings, into our relationships with other people, into the tools that we use. And it's so interesting and, and amusing to me, Brian, that like, even in athletics, which is about um, using the body to, you know, to to get things done on the court or on the field or whatever, that that the idea that the body was sort of inconsequential would predominate. And that to me, that shows just how um, incredibly dominant the the opposite of the extended mind is, which Andy Clark has called um the brain bound model, the idea that anything that matters is, is, is goes on inside the skull, inside the brain. The idea that that would even be dominant within athletics, I think shows you just how incredibly powerful that I would call it a misunderstanding that misunderstanding is. Do you like to make a distinction between the mind and the brain? I've heard some that like to separate the two. Um, have you, have you thought about that or heard that? Uh, how do you think about that? Yeah, well, the brain obviously is an organic um, organ, you know, and I, I I write a lot in the extended mind about understanding the built-in limitations of of the organic brain, the biological brain. Um, it, it the brain is a you know it's it's as I say it's it's an organ that evolved to do certain tasks to keep us alive, you know, and those tasks, those jobs that our brain evolved to do are quite different from what we expect it to do, and our are, are very knowledge centric, um, conceptually, um, you know, conceptual abstract kind of world. Um, the mind is almost like what the brain is able to do with itself, you know, and I think the extended mind is saying there's a lot more we can do with our brain than just sort of cogitate, like inside our skulls, we can actually with our minds reach outside the brain um, reach outside the skull and bring in these extra neural outside the brain resources like the body, like our environment, like relationships with other people. Yeah. I've thought a lot about, um, you know, you're, you're so interested in philosophy, science, uh, religion, some would say is a philosophy. And I'm curious for you, I'm not anti-science. Like I think science is really, really necessary, but I go back to the exploit and explore concept. And we obviously need scientists to make this world better and to solve diseases. And like, thank God we have science um, and we need to have them be highly productive so that we can help people. And then there's this other component though, that explore component of, to me, what is philosophy, which is, more open-ended and has your mind maybe uh, light up and thinking about how you might see the world. Um, how do you think about philosophy and science? And how do you think about this? Even in the pandemic, we heard, you know, people that were <laughs> pro-science like to an extreme. And then we heard people that were anti-science to extreme. Let's just use vaccine as an example. How do you make sense of um, leaning into science while also exploring philosophy and how do we have space for both of those to coexist together? Yeah. Wow. That's an interesting question. I mean, I think I would say as a first crack at that, that philosophy addresses the question of how should we live, you know, and to me, that's the most interesting question these days. I, I would say that earlier in my career and in my life, I was more interested in figuring out why are we the way we are? What makes us the way we are? And it's not to say I've completely figured that out for my own sake, but at some point it's like, okay, I am who I am. I Now I, I have some understanding of how I got to be this way. Now it's like, 
how do, how do I live? How do I, how, what is the best way for human beings to live? And I think that's part of what led me to creativity. You know, like I was saying earlier, um, to me, creativity is the, uh, one of the highest kind of expressions of, of being human. And so to me, it's, it's, um, it's a wonderful thing to be thinking about and trying to figure out. And I do ground my work. I root it very much in science. You know, there's, I, I could be sort of, spe- you know, um, spooling out all kinds of theories of my own about how creativity works as a practitioner. I, and I do think that, um, craft knowledge is really important to listen to people who actually, who actually are doing the teaching or who actually are doing the creating here to hear from them about how that works. Um, but I also am really drawn to the scientific method to using these, um, again, sort of human created rules for figuring things out um, to, and the reason I find that so useful and that I, I, I always try to ground my work in empirical research is that so often what we assume and what we expect and what we think we know is wrong, you know, and psychology, which is really my my wheelhouse um, shows us that again and again, that the way we interpret or understand reality is often mistaken. And we actually need science to show us that. Yeah. We see that in bias. You mentioned the stereotype threat in, in your book and how that can show up as well. Um, I'm thinking though, and I'm wondering, and sorry if I'm asking you questions, if you, if there are no answers, it's also okay, but those are the best questions in my opinion. Animals, you mentioned like creativity is so human. So I'm thinking like, are animals creative? Like, oh, yeah. is that- That's a really good point. That's a really good point. I, I shouldn't say that it's creativity, suggests that creativity is singularly human because we know now that animals use tools, for example, animals play, you know, um, is there something special about human creativity? I would argue so, but I don't want to make that dualistic mistake again of, of, you know, we are animals also. So I don't want to say that we're, we're separate in some way from, from the animal kingdom. And, and these are, that's another way of saying that creativity is an evolved capacity, you know, it helped us survive. And that's one reason that we all are in possession of it. Yeah. But I'm thinking, let's just go to your cat. Cause you have a cat (laughs) like next to you. Is that part of our secret sauce uh, as an animal? Is mm-hmm. that we have this create this creative capacity? Is that what's allowed us to be on top of the animal kingdom, so to speak? That perhaps other animals don't have that capacity um, to like, like think about what we've built. It's nuts. We're literally <laughs> recording this over a computer. Uh, are you in California? Where are you? Where I'm are you? in Connecticut, New Haven. You're in Connecticut, right? So you're you're nowhere near me right now, and right. yet we are recording this, and wow. yeah, I, it's it's insane, right? And and I mentioned artificial intelligence, like what we're creating is is insane, and I'm wondering, yeah, I, I mean, I'm wondering if other animals show similar sparks of creativity. Now I'm going to like planet of the apes type stuff and and what what will happen? No, what I'd say to that is that we humans have elaborated on those basic instincts that we may share with with 
animals. We've elaborated on them to such an incredible degree, as you mentioned. But, you know, my cat is curious, you know, that's that's a trait that cats are known for. They are interested in new things. They're intrigued by new things. And I think it can actually be helpful to remember that those are very basic drives, you know, that we do share with animals and that we can get in touch with, even though our our daily lives may have moved us kind of far, pretty far away from those visceral drives. I love intersections and I'm thinking about your work and there's this intersection of one of the awesome parts of your book was talking about the power of hands and how we communicate with our hands even before the words come out. And I'm literally using my hands as I say that. And I'm thinking about, it's probably an intersection, right? Like there's a part of us that is wired for cave people days. And then we are continuing to evolve, but perhaps our brain and our body hasn't evolved at the same level that our creativity has. And, and I'm I'm just fascinated by the intersection. Can you talk a little about the hands and communication and how our body sometimes speaks before uh, our words or, or before we communicate with other people? Yeah, yeah, sure. This was a really fun part of the the book to work on because um, gesture in general, I think is really, um, it's it's so widely disregarded. We kind of, if we think about it at all, we think um, it comes to our attention when somebody's like gestic- gesticulating wildly and we think, why don't they just, you know, chill and like stop with all the, you know, the talking with the hands. But in fact, uh, gesturing is this incredibly subtle and nuanced and um, sophisticated uh, method of not only communication, I was going to say communication, but it's not just about communicating to other people. It's actually, as you were, as you were saying, Brian, it's about uh, our own thinking process. It's, it's a part, and this is classic extended mind. Our, the movement of our hands is thinking. It is part of the thinking process. And in fact, it's often even a few milliseconds ahead of where our, you know, sort of classic uh, thinking inside the brain is when we're when we're trying to explain something, when we're trying to work something out, it's actually going to show up first in the movements of our hands before we're able to formulate the words um, to 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 put it in. And that's so different from our notion that you know we tend to really um, elevate and valorize um, spoken words, you know, our, our verbal capacities, and we tend to denigrate our physical and, um, corporeal kind of capacities. But in fact, it's the hands that are getting there first. So I, I really, I really love that example. It has me thinking about, once again, I come from sports, there's a fist bump, mm-hmm. you know, historically <laughs> a pat on the ass, right? Like a high five, um, and we use our hands to communicate support for each other. And we don't even have to say anything. And there's a connection that happens. And then even like, I reach out to someone to put my arm around them. That's it is a, or a hug. And like, there is this connection that we can have with people that lets them know that we've got their back, that we don't, we literally don't have to say anything. And I think about myself in this because I'm deaf in my left ear. And so, my whole life I've used touch. I've used my eyes. I've probably used my hands to convey messages and read other people. And I'm not like one of these, Oh, I go play poker and I read people's body language and I know how to play poker to beat them. I'm I'm not very good at poker when I play. Um, but 
I do see things that perhaps other people miss because I am focused on their body. I think I've had to anticipate what they're going to say often, but I want to flip that because one of the things I learned when I was in grad school was my anticipation often led to me not listening. Mm -hmm. And so because I noticed things in their body, I came to a conclusion too quickly. Mm -hmm. And in psychology, our job is often to be patient, to receive, to listen deeply to not just what they're saying, but also what their body is saying. Um, active listening is, is really what we get trained on to do. And I learned going through that process that I was not a good listener because I would just anticipate. And if I'm right, 30% of the time, I could be rewarded for that in different areas of my life. And I think I was rewarded for that in sports because I had a vision and could anticipate things to a certain extent. But I noticed it actually hurt me when I was working with people because I would assume based on my life experience that what they were saying was what I I thought the answer was. And yeah. I needed to be patient and be curious a little bit longer. So in your research, as you study this stuff and, and start to play with it, uh, do you find that people perhaps lean too much into hand gestures and too much into what their eyes or, or their bodies even telling them, Oh, I'm connected to this person, but they're actually, you know, manipulating me in some way, or um, perhaps there are traps that we run into because we're not staying quiet enough or slow enough. And we're speeding up too quickly to make our own assumptions. Can you talk about that side of, maybe hand gestures and, and the receiving side of what it's like to be on the other end of them. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting, Brian, what you were saying about your own experience, because what I found myself wondering was whether you were, you could be able to perceive that there was kind of a mismatch between what someone was saying with their body and then what they were, you know, once you, you learn to tune in also to what people were saying, if you maybe could have the superpower of seeing like how sometimes those things differ. Um, That's where I hope, I hope I am. Um, My wife would probably say I'm not there, but I, as I learned more about myself and how I showed up, I was like, yeah, if I could blend these two so I could notice it, share what I noticed. Hey, Annie, I noticed that you're nodding your head. I noticed that you're smiling. You know, I noticed that you get energized when talking about creativity I could, if I could rein that in, but not say it is right. Not get to a conviction. Hey, I'm curious, Annie, when you're nodding your head, it seemed like you're agreeing with me. Am I reading that right? Or did I miss that? Right. Or I noticed you source of information um, that you need to check. Yeah. Well, that, and that also makes me think of another aspect of the book, which is interoception. We haven't really talked about that yet, but that's this uh, tuning into internal sensations of the body. And there's a part of the book that's about social interoception, which just means um, paying attention to how you're feeling in your own body when you interact with another person. And this is something that um, therapists, you know, uh, psychotherapists are really good at. They pick up cues and clues in their own body as to what their client, their patient is feeling, but maybe not able to say or not willing to say yet. So that would be another way of kind of like tuning into the body as a secondary or not, or maybe even primary source of information, but one not relying on people's words alone. Yeah. And I think about um, my ability to manage that in myself because I'm human too. So I'm going to have stuff going on in my body that 
might get quote unquote triggered because someone said something, but I need to be able to manage that. And I love how you talk about the body scan and the ability to just notice your body. For me, I have learned that anger often runs up my spine. And so if I'm aware that anger is running up my spine, sometimes anger is necessary and helpful. And then other times it's not. And so the more I can manage it and notice the the anger, the more I can decide what I want to do with it. Um, so I love the the body scan uh, mindfulness exercises that you do. You also talk a lot about uh, synchronized movement and the power of groups. And yeah. when I watched, I watched a talk you you did. It was a panel uh, at the Aspen Ideas Festival, and you talked a lot about synchronized movement. And you actually had the group get up, and it was almost like hip hop array, ho, like a naughty by nature concert. All of a sudden at the Aspen Ideas Festival, which is probably right. a, a first, yeah. Right. But but talk a little bit about groups and and others and how others and that does and by the way you can tap back to creativity and if you want to go extended mind and because to me when I have people on the podcast who have written books I don't love the rote answers that I hear on every podcast that they've been on it's like how do we uh, spark in creativity into our conversation. So literally, if you want to talk about, hey, synchronized movement and what you've noticed with the extended mind and perhaps how that might also impact us from a creative standpoint. So feel free to, to flow with this however you see fit. Yeah, well, you had asked me earlier, Brian, and I don't think I got around to answering how I see the extended mind and creativity interacting. And I really do. I really feel like my interest in creativity grew directly out of the work I was doing on the extended mind. And I think the way I would answer that is that I came to understand the extended mind as a way that we transcend the limits of our biological brains, which are very limited in terms of how much they can understand, how much they can remember, how well they can pay attention, you know, all these things that are built in limits that we all share. It's just a product of having a human brain. It's not like people being smarter or less smart. It's it's like something that we all have to grapple with. And um, I came to feel that the extended mind was the best way for us to transcend those limitations by not relying on the brain alone, but by reaching out and drawing in all these outside the brain resources to augment the, the biological brain's limited capacities. And I think that's exactly what creative people do. And it was interesting when I, when the book came out, I found that, um, artists were of, of all kinds, visual artists, you know, dancers, musicians were among the people who really got the idea right away because artists are, have always thought with their bodies and thought with space and thought with in collaboration with other people. So this was kind of putting a scientific and a philosophical framework on what artists do all the time. But I think, kind of bringing the world into your thinking is such an essential aspect of creativity. And that's where the connection lies for me. So then in terms of synchronized movement, um, you know, I, I always do like to remember that we are animals, we are um, biological beings. And a lot of, although we're doing very sophisticated things here in our workplaces and our schools and whatever, we are at bottom you know, these biological creatures. And that to me shows up so strongly in the power of synchronized movement that um, when we are physically in the same place, moving in similar ways at the same time, and that could be like people dancing at a rave, or it could be even just two people walking, because when we walk together, interestingly, we fall into a kind of synchronized movement. And when, when people do that, they tend to lose that very um, divided sense of being a separate person. They tend to 
get a more expansive feeling of like, oh, I'm, I'm actually, I'm like this person. I can get along with this person. I can, um, in some ways blend my identity with this other person when we engage in synchronized movement. And that body mind connection to me is just so fascinating. I sometimes do walk and talks with my clients and we'll go for a walk. And those are some of our best sessions. And I'm thinking about some of my best friends who are fast walkers. Like we'll be walking together and they are ahead of me. And my older brother is a fast walker. Uh, and and when I feel connected with people, it's more that we're in lockstep together. We're in sync together, even when we're walking. And you can even look down and see our feet are almost moving in the in the same direction. You you dropped in earlier. You said I I at first was really interested in why we become who we become. And yeah. Uh, I think that's probably an ode to origins and the book you read, uh, wrote, which was about how the nine months before birth shaped the rest of our lives. Can you interject that into this conversation and just give us a little more wisdom into perhaps the extended mind that goes even further into um, before we're even um, on this planet and and how that might shape um, how how we see the world? Yeah. Well, I see, I do see a connection there. As you say, that, that book was about prenatal influences. I was pregnant with my second son when I was researching and writing that book. So it was very personal to me, but what was fascinating to me about what I was learning about um, what's called the, the fetal origins of health and disease is that the world is affecting us even before we've really entered it, you know, even before we've been born the kinds of things that are being transmuted to, to the fetus through the mother, like, how much stress she feels, the kind of diet she's eating, the kind of supportive community that she has or doesn't have around her, all those things are affecting the way that the that the fetus is developing and the kinds of capacities that that individual will bring into the world once they're born. So to me, it was like a really interesting intervention in this nurture nature question. You know, we sometimes um, act as if, well, there's nature, you know, you're DNA blueprint is is laid down at, at the moment of conception. And then there's nurture, which starts the moment that you you emerge into the world and your parents start caring for you. And to me, there was like this nine month period that was potentially very consequential that we really hadn't um taken full stock of, you know. And so to me, it's 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 related to the extended mind in that I'm so interested in how the individual is shaped by the world, how the world becomes a part of the individual. This is going to be a, a large question that's not going to have a, a singular answer. So just stay with me and explore with me. Um, so you have two sons, Teddy and Gus, and in the acknowledgments, which, which when I prepare for podcasting, that's the first place I go. I go to the back of the book. I love it. Yes. Yeah, because it really tells you about who the heck is writing this this book. And so you you said, you know, they've transformed you to become a better person. And I was curious about how they have uh, transformed you to become a better person. Oh, wow. Well, that is a big question, Ryan. Um, becoming a mother is, you know, one of the the most has is just the most profound experience in my life. I think um I wonder if there, there's anything I can say that won't just sound um, trite at this point, but of course, uh, parenthood calls on you to become selfless in a way that you never would be as a childless adult, or I certainly wasn't. And as someone who was fascinated by and very um, 
involved in thinking about and writing about identity and who we are, because my first book was actually about personality and whether personality can be captured and measured in, in personality tests. Um, to have your own identity so profoundly changed in that way and in some ways challenged, you know, because there's so much you have to set aside to uh, in terms of care, putting the needs of someone else first when you have a child. I think that that has changed me forever and changed the way that I understand life and changed the way that I regard myself. I just, I think it, 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 it invites changes that can't be undone. You know, once you're a parent, you see the world in a different way. That's been my experience. I cry at like the most random movies, like anything involving kids. I just start crying mm -hmm. <laughs> my body. It just like, and that did not happen prior to having kids. It was like, did not cry that much when I watched movies. I mean, I probably did like Lion King got me when I was, when I was younger, but uh, like didn't, didn't cry all that much. And then you have kids and, and, I just like ball and especially if something bad happens to a kid and I'm wondering about my body and, and your work in, in that regard, it's like, yeah, our body and these other pieces of us are, are coming out and it's data and information that we should pay attention to. And maybe it's nothing, but maybe there's a story there. And I just recently had an experience where I was crying a lot and I was like, I'm, I'm surprised by this. Like I'm, I didn't think that this would affect me this way. And those tears, as I did a deeper dive into them, they need to be used to our point about feeling alive, like experience all the emotions and men I'll speak for all men right now because all men represent me. Uh, I, we do, we get socialized to not lean into that. And when I was really young, I was called sensitive and being called sensitive as a boy is not always looked at as a positive. Um, and so that, that has me, thinking about that. You mentioned personality as well. And I've got two kids that are 14 months difference. And it is wild to me how different their nature was out of the womb. And, you know, being 14 months apart, they're not twins, but my wife and I, we didn't change all that much. I don't think in those 14 months. Um, and so for you and, and your exploration into personality assessments, I created my own assessment tool. And as I was going into it, I fell out of love with uh, personality assessments. I, I still leverage them for my clients because I think it's a good baseline. I think the mistake we make is thinking that it's the end all be all and that they are perfect and that they are all telling. Um, and I've found flaws in the ones that I've used. Um, can you talk about the call to personality and, and what you've experienced and explored and researched and how we should be thinking about personality tools and, and, and assessments and just personality in general, um, from your lens? Yeah. Yeah. So the, theme of the, uh, of the cult of personality that that book about personality testing that I wrote was that these tests, and I, I devoted a chapter to each of the most popular personality or the most important um, personality tests, historically important personality tests. And the idea was that those tests reflected more about the creators of the tests and the, and the culture and the era in which they lived than the people taking the test. Um, 
And, you know, I wrote that when I was in my early thirties, I'm now 50. So I've, I've, I've had occasion to kind of return to my own assumptions about personality over time, because when I was writing the book, I was very adamant in my own mind that personality was situational, you know, that, that we, we could be anything and anyone. It just, it just depended on the kind of the environment or the situation that we found ourselves in. And I, I was led to rethink this at one point when a friend of mine said to me, you know, Annie, you wrote this book about how personality, you know, in a sense, doesn't really exist in the, what think in the way that we think it does. And like, you know, we, we, we're always changing. We're always sort of fluid. And, and they were like, but you have the most distinctive and fixed personality of like anyone I know. And I was like, maybe I'm trying to ex- escape my own, you know, the confines of my own personality. But, you know, I think being a parent, I was not a parent when I wrote, um, the cult of personality. And I think that's another way that parenting changed me that you do see that no matter no matter the fact that you are the same parent, you know, giving the same kind of care, your kids are super different and they just came out that way. And that requires a kind of respect, you know, that, that there's an essence to people. Well, I'm, I'm a Buddhist also, so I don't really think there is an essence, but, um, but one thing I wanted to say about how parent parenting has changed me is related to personality in this way that, um, and emotions in this way that I noticed that Buddhist teachings so often will, call on the experience of being a parent. And I don't, you know, people who are not parents can experience this as well, but so often we'll use as an analogy, something like, um, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh says, hold your anger like a baby, you know, or um, um, treat your, your feelings, even the most uncomfortable and painful ones, as if you would, you would treat with the kind of love and kindness that you would give to, to a child, you know? And to me, that's like, that's such a wellspring of wisdom to draw on that, um, that comes into being, that can come into being when you're a parent, or maybe when you're caring for any kind of vulnerable creature that needs you. The scariest part of writing a book I found was that it's done. <laughs> and it's not done. And, right. you're gonna, and, and yeah, I think of like Mark Zuckerberg, not that I, I have that much in common with him, but if I'm thinking of creativity and someone who created something, I don't know, he comes to mind. I'm pretty sure when he was at Harvard and starting this thing, he wasn't thinking that it would have this negative influence on high school girl, you know, teenagers. Um, and I, I like, I'm pretty sure he wasn't thinking that was going to happen. And you know, they were moving fast and breaking things. And since then they've said, Hey, maybe we need to slow down a little bit and wow. think about what we're doing. And even I've mentioned artificial intelligence. We've just now had a lot of people come out and say, Hey, we need to slow down on this. This could really have negative consequences. Mm-hmm. Writing a book. Um, how do you make sense of it? You mentioned it. It's been almost like 20 years or uh, whatever it is, 15, 20 years for you. Like, yeah. When you have something in there that 15 or 20 years later, you're like, you know what? I was wrong. And that, that might actually not be the best. I I already have things in there. Like I have a story about Kanye West in my book and I'm kind of like, yeah, maybe I could have picked someone else to get my point across. It probably would be more effective than, than referencing yay. Um, and I struggle with that. Right. Like, cause I, I don't want negative consequences. I guess we could go edit it and, and change it, but I don't want, I don't want it to have negative consequences, but I still wanted to speak what I believed was true. And I believe people needed to think differently about how, for me, it was how they were preparing, how their preparation mind and their performance mind were different. 
And I still believe that to be true, but I want each person to explore for themselves. And um, I've come to the conclusion like, ah, you know, you can disagree and that's fine. That's, that's healthy. Um, but how do you make sense of putting something out in the world and then not being able to change it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, we intervene in the culture at a particular moment with the best that we, the best version of our ideas that we can pull together at that time. And that hopefully sets off a ripple effect, which maybe ends up changing the culture in a way that makes that statement, you know, that book um, less true than it was when you, when you wrote it, you know, I mean, the, the point, at least to me of writing a book is to stimulate change, you know, and so you can't be upset when, when then things change and your book looks a little bit, um, let it fits the moment less well than it did when you, when you wrote it. But, um, you know, we all, we're all changing and we're all evolving. It's only maybe, um, those of us who write on, you know, dead trees who have that, <laughs> who have that monument out there to remind us that like, oh yeah, I, I did once think that I did, I did say that. <laughs> yeah. Look how stupid I was. It's great. Uh, I want to end by just, I wrote down this question. I didn't get to a lot of the questions I wrote down ahead of time, which is how I know this conversation was a good conversation. But um, I wrote this down and I was thinking about it and I want to think about it in a different lens based on what we talked about today, which is if we want to be more creative, how can we invite the body to the party? How can mm -hmm. we invite the body to join us mm -hmm. to spark our, to spark our creativity? Yeah, there's actually a very um, solid way to do that, like a very uh, empirically supported way to do that. And that uh, it requires a little bit of explanation, but um, basically we think in terms of metaphors, especially when we're trying to think about something abstract, like like creativity or new ideas. And so we, we put that in, um, we just sort of naturally and automatically put that in terms of our body, because that's our firsthand experience with the world is moving through the, the world in a body. And so you, and it shows up in our language so that you can, um, you can look at what we say when we're, when our creative work is not going well, we'll say I'm in a rut or I'm stuck. You know, those are like embodied metaphors for, for not being able to move freely. And then when things are going well, we'll say I'm on a roll. My thoughts are flowing, you know, and again, that's an embodied metaphor. And it turns out that, you know, when we use words like that, we're describing a physical state that's related to an, uh, a mental state. But we can do, we can make it go in the other direction, if you know what I mean. We can start moving the body in a fluid, dynamic way that is evocative of creativity. And in that way, put our minds in a, a kind of a frame of mind or a mindset that is more that is more creative, that is more open to new ideas. So something, this is why people often say, I get my best ideas while I'm on a walk or I'm, um, I'm, uh, I'm riding my bike or whatever. It's because we are giving our bodies and our minds this kind of signal of like, I'm, I'm moving, I'm freely kind of ex exploring the environment. I have this dynamic kind of view of things flowing past my eyes. All of these things put us in a mind, a mindset, a frame of mind that allow those unexpected, you know, ideas to, to, to surface much more so than sitting still at a desk, which is a lot, what a, a lot of us think of as working, <laughs> you know, we actually would be better, better um, served by, by getting our bodies moving. And it's interesting. There's awesome research about the body and exercise and what it does for our brains. And uh, we had Kelly McGonigal on and, and she talked a lot about 
um, the body and the power of it. Um, Mm -hmm. But I'm also thinking about the shower or like I have a hot tub and being in the hot tub or in bed and just not on my freaking phone and how I have space to explore. So um, for each of us, I think it's cool to to brainstorm ways we can do that. All right. I want to close just by giving you a platform to share where people can learn more about you. I know you have AnnieMurphyPaul.com. You're on Twitter at AnnieMurphyPaul. Is there anywhere else where people should go to get the extended mind or your previous books or your future book? Uh, uh, what's the best place to go? Yeah, those places are good that you just mentioned. And also um, I'm, ex- I'm exploring and working through these ideas about creativity on a Substack newsletter called Science of Creativity. So people can find me there. That's where, you know, for better or for worse, the cutting edge of what I'm thinking about these days. Awesome. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson and LinkedIn also at Brian Levinson. And you can listen to all of these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Annie, thank you so much. Really appreciate your work. Great to meet you. Hope to meet you in person sometime soon. Now that I know that you're in New Haven, maybe I'll have to come up and eat some pizza with you if you eat pizza, but you're in the the home and the hub of pizza. Um, So thanks for coming on the podcast and uh, looking forward to meeting you in person. Thank you, Brian. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. Psychologist Alison Gopnik has a really useful way of talking about it. She talks about how there's um, exploit mode and there's exploration mode. And exploit is what we do as adults when we take all the knowledge and all the skills that we build up so carefully and we go right to the heart of what we need to do, get it done. You know, it's like um, we're very efficient and very effective in that way. But if that's all we do, then we're not bringing in all the potentially kind of game-changing, you know, options and alternatives that we can only find by this messy kind of, you know, open-ended, curiosity-driven exploration.